thing. Reasonable accommodation is something I love with a passion and I love to try to creatively build a bridge. You've got somebody with a disability who's saying, I need help in my work environment. And then having a manager come to me and try to work through that to say, well, can we reach out to the employee and meet them and build a bridge that helps both to succeed? I'm Aileen Hamto, your host for Colors of Influence, an interview show that highlights stories of purpose and intention told by leaders of color who are working toward advancing equity, diversity, and justice. My guest is Michael Tom, founder and chief consultant of Northwest Workplace Investigations, based in Portland, Oregon. Workplace Investigations partners with businesses and organizations to conduct investigations into complaints related to employment and labor issues, with a clear emphasis on neutral and fair fact-finding. As an external investigator, Mike conducts interviews, gathers documents, and delivers a fair, equitable, and neutral report highlighting sound findings and recommendations for next steps. Before starting his own business, Mike logged more than 25 years of experience in employment law, civil rights investigations, litigation, affirmative action planning, and diversity and inclusion leadership. Most recently at Oregon Health and Science University, he served as Director of Affirmative Action and Equal Opportunity. He co-led the university's Diversity Advisory Council and the Fiscal Access Committee that focused on supporting communities of disability. He successfully led OHSU's affirmative action team from 2011 through 2016, supervising investigations into all aspects of employment law and civil rights concerns. For more than a decade, Mike litigated on behalf of and advised clients as a private practice attorney, licensed in both Oregon and Washington. He earned his JD and Certificate of Alternative Dispute Resolution from Willamette University. Welcome, Mike, and thank you for making time for our conversation today. Well, thank you so much, Maylene. I really appreciate this opportunity and uh, look forward to talking here. Can we begin with the creation story for Northwest Workplace Investigations? How did you get your start in building your own business in workplace and employment investigations? I was with a very large health organization, as you know, in Portland area. And uh, I was feeling like there needed to be some change for me um, personally. And I felt like it would be building on my career. I've had kind of a number of chapters in my career. I uh, started out as a litigation attorney um, doing defense work and doing trainings in employment and labor law. And uh, I did that for about a decade. And then I transitioned over to OHSU as a compliance investigator doing civil rights investigations and then uh, made my way up um, to the director of the Affirmative Action Equal Opportunity Department of um, that same health organization. Uh, and that was about a 15-year uh, chapter of my career, and I'd been doing the directorship for five years and had some really amazing experiences as a, um, a diversity inclusion partner at the um, institution. And uh, I enjoyed that work greatly, and the diversity inclusion work was something new for me when I joined that organization. And so it was a growth opportunity for me, for me personally, professionally arose and the fact that I could set up my own business and have a lot more flexibility. And uh, frankly, the organization just wasn't uh, pushing the diversity inclusion in a direction that I was um, uh, comfortable with. And so I just felt like uh, this was a good move for me to um, start 
my own business and doing investigations for employers uh, that I'd known through the years in my various positions, various roles, and uh, various connections. And so it just seemed like a combination of everything that I've done, whether it was legal or compliance or diversity inclusion, it all seemed to kind of connect together in a really nice way. And um, as I was closing one chapter with uh, that healthcare organization, I uh, was opening another chapter and doing what I'm doing now. So I was I was pretty excited to kind of be my own be my own business and uh, uh, get out there and do marketing for myself and for the kind of work I do. So um, that's kind of how it came about. It was kind of a lot of different things culminating, and um, it just was an opportunity that kind of landed <laughs> in my lap and came together at the right time for me and my family. In doing this work, what value do you bring to employees and to employers? So, uh, as you know, the type of work I do is to be an investigator in employment contexts where um, individuals feel they're being treated in either a discriminatory way or a unprofessional way or disrespectful way. There's lots of um, different words we can attach to how feel, people feel in their workplace and how people feel that they are being treated. And so I think I have a pretty good um, history in terms of being a neutral party in doing these investigations and really being able to listen to an employee's concerns um, to understand kind of his or her um, perceptions of what's going on in the workplace, as well as looking at the other side. So somebody who's being alleged to have done things like discrimination and harassment or um, treating people disrespectfully or unprofessionally. I think I have a, a neutral, um, well-balanced um, uh, experience, both in kind of professional spheres, but also personal spheres. And uh, so I think I'm just a really neutral person to kind of hear both sides and then make the hard decision as to, okay, well, is there evidence or is there support uh, that says that somebody's been misbehaving in essence? And so I think, again, my um, ability to talk with people and more, probably more importantly, listen to people and to ask hopefully good questions to try to understand um, frameworks that people are coming into situations that uh, I've been asked to try to understand. So um, I think, again, I bring value to both sides of the equation and my experience and ability to listen and ability to um, work through the issues. Thank you for sharing that. What do you find most gratifying about your work? Well, um, in my role as an investigator, probably the most gratifying is just having people appreciate you and having um, people reaching out to you, feel, feeling valued in, in your work and having your work valued and that's a continuing proposition in the sense that I have um, many repeat customers, which is validation for me. And again, if I'm holding myself out as a neutral, I, that feels important to me that people value me and my professional work that I'm um, providing to them as a service. Um, so that's probably the most gratifying for me. And just, again, kind of the combination of everything I've done in my career of using legal skills, using my diversity inclusion experiences, um, using my training um, background as well to be able to provide trainings to employers 
Um, it just seems like kind of, again, a conglomerate of everything I've done in the past. My experiences as an employee, my experiences working with unions, my experiences being a supervisor and manager, um, and being part of an organization at a high level trying to lead initiatives. I think my perspective and experience really um, uh, adds value to kind of the work I do. Thank you, Mike. And I want to take this opportunity to be fully transparent in thanking you for your work at OHSU. I, I really learned a lot from uh, our time working together as uh, I was working at the Center for Diversity and Inclusion while you were Director of, of Affirmative Action and Equal Opportunity at the same institution. So you and I had many opportunities to work together, particularly in supporting employee resource groups, uh, events, um, community outreach, etc. So so really wanted to thank you and credit your work and your passion toward advancing diversity and inclusion and really using your authority and your positional power during that time to advance the goals and the values of equity, diversity, and inclusion across the university. So why is focusing on DNI important to you? Uh, thank you for your uh, kind words. And I think... Uh... Um, I always get a little embarrassed about that sort of compliment because it's like uh, there's just so many um, people that are rowing the boat and um, it it takes just the efforts of so many. And I think that's kind of one of, one of the reasons why I um, thought that a large organization like that was starting to lose some of its traction because it lost focus on goals and, and funding. And um, there's just a lot of moving parts, but uh, everybody that was um, involved in that era that you're talking about, we're just uh, super partners and it was very collaborative and a really, really exciting um, time. And I think hopefully with all the new, um, and I say new very loosely, but things like Black Lives Matter or um, the Me Too era or trans, uh, Black Trans Lives, all, all these initiatives um, just are really, really exciting and I think might be reinvigorating for people like you and I and others in the diversity inclusion sphere where sometimes the momentum is lost and we need to refocus and really understand kind of the systemic issues that are there that still haven't been, been addressed. Going back to the original question on um, why is diversity, equity, inclusion um, important? I think it just um, needs to be integral in everything that we do not only in the business sense, but in our personal lives and in our understanding and interactions with others, whether it's our neighbors or people we meet in our lives, uh, in our communities, um, even people we interact with at the grocery store, as an example, because it just needs to be part of the fabric of everything we do as good people. And um, it, it shouldn't be a standalone separate initiative. There does need to be separate focus and separate energy and separate resources. But I, I always am a little challenged when it's looked at as kind of a box that we put all these things in, into and should be more overlapping circles where there's a real commonality with the intersection points. But um, when we're in isolation or silos, I just don't think you get as no, enough traction enough understanding, enough interaction, enough collaboration, enough um, allies that have a deep understanding. Um, and you start losing kind of momentum if, again, you're kind of siloed. So to me, it's always a focus of everything I try to do. And um, it's always something that everyone should be 
grappling with, in my opinion, and um, always kind of thinking about and trying to keep in their um, framework so that uh, we're not missing bigger things and we're not being as inclusive and as welcome as possible. And so in doing the work that you do now, how has your experience in leading affirmative action equal opportunity efforts in a large healthcare organization, how has that impacted your current work? Uh, so it's interesting because a lot of um, my kind of cold calling clients will look at my profile. And I think that component that's sitting there around affirmative action, equal opportunity, as well as the diversity and inclusion piece um, can be really important in certain types of cases where um, there are questions from the reporting parties around whether um, they are being included or whether management and leadership, it tends to fall into the management leadership piece, actually, more so than um, my co colleague or coworkers not being inclusive or diverse. It's more around challenging leadership when, again, clients or prospective clients see that on my portfolio, they um, see me as somebody who can add value to the type of investigation I'm doing because of my experiences with affirmative action and leading affirmative action in a large um, organization. And so it really um, helps me when I approach both sides of the equation, so the reporting party and the responding party, and as well as whoever's kind of managing the situation when I'm gone with my, I've done and gone with my um, uh, investigation that, you know, I can add value to that investigation to say, okay, well, we had an issue with um, diversity inclusion and maybe um, somebody not being as sensitive or as informed as they might um, be in the diversity inclusion realm. And, you know, what are, what are you doing organizationally? Is there some training that can take place that will help your organization? Or maybe it's a unit within the organization, or maybe it's even uh, management and leadership needs to understand that um, this is a very sensitive topic, but also that uh, they are um, needing some training and some understanding of how to approach bigger issues and how to be structurally sound in the organization and to uh, make sure that they understand there's a bigger picture here rather than this isolated incident that's kind of come to the forefront and been raised in terms of maybe discrimination or harassment, but also um, pointing to these bigger issues within the organization. So again, I think that my experience is um, helpful from an organizational standpoint that I can not only focus on the, the microcosm, but the bigger, larger macro. Um, environment of the organization and uh, help them understand, well, you know, there might be some policies and procedures that are lacking, or there may be some initiatives that could be cleaned up that would help in their, um, in their growth and in their understanding of uh, diversity and inclusion. Thank you. And, and just a quick follow-up about what you shared uh, regarding trainings. Can you share more about the kinds of topics and training approaches that you offer through workplace investigations? So why are these trainings needed and how do organizations benefit from these trainings? Yeah, so um, legally, there's kind of the baseline, if you will, around harassment and discrimination and reasonable accommodation. Um, so I would say kind of the compliance basement, if you will, there's kind of a floor that all employers really should have in place. And 
Some are better than others, and some are more sophisticated and have more robust programs. And so um, I certainly offer those types of trainings for organizations that are looking for kind of the nuts and bolts. Um, I try to make it interactive so that um, the audience is participating. I think there's kind of, again, kind of the black letter law and harassment and discrimination, but how can we build on that? So I will work with an employer to develop scenarios and um, breakout sessions where the participants can really wrestle through some um, hopefully challenging scenarios and then come back to the group and explore and discuss kind of the group's findings and, and analysis of um, situations. Because my goal in these um, training is, is to come out with folks having tools rather than having a legal um, lecture. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, have lots of questions uh, and uh, have discussion than just being up and pointing to PowerPoints and having lecture. So uh, that that's kind of one area of training I do. And then the other training is um, kind of building on that basement, if you will, which would be more in the diversity and inclusion realm. Um, one example that comes to mind is I worked with a group that uh, had its board members and all of its um, senior leaders in the room to talk about the Me Too era and kind of what sort of challenges do board members and executives have um, in the day-to-day -day in their roles, but also when they go out to various conferences refer re representing their organization. Um, a number of folks went to a conference and uh, something happened at the conference, not with this organization, but another organization. And so it brought up some red flags to them and they were trying to be proactive around, well, you know, we might be in the same situation and how do we train our leaders to understand what to do when somebody at a conference says something very um, gender biased and uh, sexist or, um, you know, is engaging in behaviors that might be great at a bar, but not so great at a professional work environment or professional environment where, again, the industry was there. And so um, that would be another, again, kind of example of type of training where it's a little bit um, above the uh, baseline and kind of wrestling through some very specific uh, scenarios that they had come up with. And then I kind of built upon it with other experiences I've had with other organizations and trying to um, understand other potential um, challenges that might arise in those kinds of situations or even just in day-to-day -day, um, workplace. So being reasonable accommodation is something I love with a passion and I love to try to creatively build a bridge. You've got somebody with a disability who's saying, I can't do or I need help in my work environment. And then having a manager come to me and try to work through that to say, well, can we reach out to the employee and meet them and build a bridge that helps both to succeed? We have an employee who's able to do their work and be productive and successful. We have an employer that it's reaching out and welcoming and being inclusive of those who have disabilities and they're building a bridge and um, it's a productive uh, equation for all and uh, beneficial for all. You're always so modest about your achievements, Mike. <laughs> You're one of the foremost experts on disability employment in the region, having championed Night for Networking to ensure that employers are doing their share and also their part in hiring and retaining differently abled employees to contribute to their work. Night for Networking uh, was a way for job seekers with disabilities to connect with some of the largest employers in Oregon and Southwest Washington, and you've had uh, great success in leading that. 
Also, uh, at OHSU, you were one of the founders of the Physical Access Committee during a time when the university was building new facilities, and your leadership really ensured that ADA standards and accommodations were central to developing built spaces that are accessible and welcoming to the public in general. And so I'm just wondering, in your current work, how do you continue to champion disability rights in the workplace? I view and I hope most people view diversity in its broadest terms. So whether it's um, LGBTQ issues, whether it's race, whether it's disability, age, um, socioeconomic background, I, I view diversity very, very broadly. And so um, whenever I have an opportunity, I like to include um, individuals with disabilities because uh, it seems like uh, there's a lot of focus on other areas, whether it's gender or race right now. Um, it, it, disabilities tends to be kind of a lagging group for some reason. Um, so to me, that's a special passion. And I'm not really sure where that comes from other than, again, I have just a really um, strong sense of all all uh, categories of diversity are important. And again, it seems like the the conversation oftentimes is left out for those with disabilities. So um, to me, if, if uh, I see that, and I want to kind of uh, point that out and bring that to awareness, because a lot of times that is a silent population that's not represented. And Again, I'm not sure what it is about that particular population, um, but uh, I uh, will raise it um, in my work in the sense of if there is uh, ways to try to address challenges, then I'm always uh, trying to uh, point that out for folks to try to help things along and to try to facilitate resolutions or, as I said earlier, kind of build bridges uh, for folks. But uh, I guess in my um, training and work and it's, it, that I do I will uh, you know again raise it as a as a group that should be um, thought of because oftentimes big organizations don't spend as much time and resources in that particular area and I think that is changing. How do you bring your multicultural background to your work and your everyday operations of the business? I may not have experienced as much um, challenges and hardship as some who do come from multicultural backgrounds and a large uh, percentage do have struggles and challenges that I probably uh, didn't have as being probably a bit privileged, to be honest. And, you know, my, both my parents went to college and went to um, professional schools and were highly educated. And I was lucky to benefit from that, I think, is what it comes down to their um, kind of uh, the privilege of education as an example and the privilege of of growing up in that um, setting. But despite that, I think I still have a strong sense of multiculturalism. As you say, my mother is Caucasian and grew up in the Midwest in Colorado. And my father is uh, Chinese and grew up in Hawaii. And so for me, both backgrounds are, are incredibly important and incredibly embedded in my, in my personality or my values. And, uh, you know, I reflect on both those heritages equally. And I look back on growing up and going to Hawaii and being with uh, that community and, and my 
grandparents on that side of my family, as well as the family on that side, and some of the traditions that are there with food and and uh, family and, and gatherings and things like that. So um, I think it's all very informative, and I don't tend to um, wear it on my sleeve as much, probably as as some, or or have a a very deep understanding of um, my uh, Chinese roots, as an example. Uh, so I don't have a very good understanding of my family history on that side. Um, but, uh, I think it's still somehow is embedded in who I am and the kind of work I do and the kind of values that I, um, uh, have, I think in, uh, diversity and inclusion, it, it, it definitely feels some of my passion and energy towards that area and, and uh, being an ally to all different groups, I think is kind of what I come down to when I look back on my multicultural background, having um, my parents who married and, and uh, I don't there were, at that point when they were in the, back in, in their era, there was, that was a little bit of a unusual situation where a Caucasian family in Colorado uh, is incorporating with a Chinese family from Hawaii. It's a very big thing. And I, I appreciate what my parents uh, uh, went through on both sides of that equation to um, try to to uh, succeed and to really have a really close family on both sides. So I think that informs how I am today. In doing the work, how do you stay true to your core personal values and your integrity? It's kind of going back to the same thing of uh, in t having um, something embedded in you and values that you continue to push forward every day, whether it's interacting with um, brain surgeons or interacting with people that serve food to the patients, you should be able to treat everyone the same way and have the same level of respect and uh, ability to relate with everybody. I think it's a really um, thing that is true to me and my, my, my core personal values and kind of what I believe. Uh, so I think that's really important in the work I do is that I literally am dealing <laughs> and working with people from all different types of um, professions and hierarchies and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different educational backgrounds and deal with uh, situations involving the police or corrections officers, parole officers, teachers, um, folks that work in healthcare, whether they're providing care or, um, you know, providing food. It's just a highly variable environment that I work in and that I need to be very sensitive to everyone I work with and give everyone the respect that they deserve and the fairness that, that they deserve. And so I think that reflects in my work. I don't look at something as kind of a transaction that you know, I can kind of wash my hands of it at, at the end of the day. Uh, those things are always with you in the sense of your reputation and your professionalism. And so if uh, you're treating people um, in a way that's not appropriate, that's eventually going to catch up to you and, and at some place and in some time. Whereas if you're treating everyone with respect and professionalism, it usually propagates more in your business and your referrals and uh, your reputation. Thank you for that perspective. You mentioned that you work across different industries with people from different levels of the organization. So in doing this work, what strategies have you cultivated to gain the trust of people that you're interviewing 
for example, for an investigation, as well as the trust of the managers and the decision makers who are who are coming to you for investigation and fact-finding services, it seems like a really delicate balancing act that you have to manage. Yeah, I think, again, kind of those good listening skills and um, asking good questions and sensitive questions and demonstrating that you have experience and you have a willingness to hear both sides and being fair. So I think um, all those things are important to try to allow people space and um, comfort to try to um, work through a situation. So um, I think, again, just being very open. And and one of the things I I early in my career, I thought, um, well, you know, being a lawyer is important and I should be able to use all the legalese and wow people with that sort of thing. But I think at the end of the day, uh, people just want the straight scoop and you know how do you treat people if you treat people with basic dignity respect and professionalism then all this other stuff around the legal pieces of harassment and discrimination shouldn't really be an issue um so i think uh kind of getting real with that basic premise and not kind of flowering it up with the legal pieces um of course need you know drawing on those things as you need to to try to help people understand and educate um, people with your knowledge, I think is always uh, helpful and um, do it in a kind way that it's uh, kind of an evolutionary thing and a learning thing rather than a shame on you. Um, you've harassed or discriminated against uh, people. Um, I, I'd like to believe that people are good and that they aren't doing things intentionally to harm others. And so there are, of course, those um, exceptions, but um, I think you know, generally just being understanding that people do make mistakes and that they can learn from them and grow from them. If they don't, then that's kind of a different scenario. But um, I think certainly um, some people, especially in the DNI area, diversity inclusion area, are always growing and um, changing over time. Um, I can remember a funny conversation with a leader that you worked with um, at OHSU where we were talking about terminology and how it's changed over the years. And um, I think I used a term that was potentially offensive to folks in a different context. So here in the Northwest, or maybe a different context than in the South. And so I can't remember exactly what the term was, but it, it was uh, something that was antiquated. And it, was, it wasn't, uh, in my mind, racist, but it may not have been sensitive. So um, you know, he just said, hey, you know, you need to know that that term is not something that should be used and it could be very offensive to others. And I, I, I was kind of surprised by it. And I talked to other people afterwards and they were surprised by it as well. And again, it's about maybe your context. Um, and I think actually the term was gal, gal, gals, I think. Um, and so this leader informed me that that could be offensive to females in the black females in the South as being similar to using the term um, boy towards um, male blacks or African-Americans. And so that was a learning moment for me. And then as we were talking, for some reason, we started talking about disability issues. And uh, I can't remember exactly his term that he used, but um, he said something along the lines of the disabled or it may have been handicapped. And so I heard those words and said, oh, <laughs> here's a learning moment for, for you as a leader and, and for me to educate you 
Um, and it wasn't, you know, uh, anything where I was trying to be a smart aleck about it, but it was, it was a funny, kind of a funny moment. And then we had a nice discussion about, uh, well, you know, that terminology has changed. It's now individuals with disabilities. It has been um, handicapped at times. It's been um, the disabled at times, but the terminology is individuals with disabilities or people with disabilities, putting people first in the language. And so, um, again, I think it's just that learning and, and curiosity and understanding that we all can make mistakes, but we can also all learn and grow from those um, evolution evolutionary things that are going on um, in diversity inclusion and in our own education, but also in society and how society is learning to be uh, more welcoming and more inclusive and maybe more understanding, hopefully, of um, different people and different cultures and different disabilities and different backgrounds. Thank you. I think that's really powerful. And I really appreciate you describing that particular anecdote, uh, especially naming the importance of learning moments. So, you know, having done this work for a little over a decade, you know, I know that the work is ever evolving and even diversity and inclusion leaders always have something to learn about new terminologies in the work so that we may all continue to improve our own practices in upholding respect and dignity for everyone that we serve. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, it's uh, having that conversation or having that understanding and sensitivity to not trigger things or not unintentionally be disrespectful or be interpreted as being disrespectful. Because again, I don't, I'm not sure if somebody without knowledge or without education or understanding who uses these terms is intentionally or unintentionally trying to be offensive. And so it's kind of the other interesting thing about that is it's a two way equation is that, you know, some people will just end the discussion at you said that word and be offended by it, but there's not the understanding of where that other person's coming from in their framework. So my framework in that scenario was I'm from the Northwest. I haven't lived in the South. I don't have any South kind of connection, but that um, I was uh, potentially being offensive and I should have that on my radar um, when I'm doing trainings with other people who come from different places, or if I go to the South um, and use that kind of terminology and uh, it resonates with um, somebody that uh, has that framework or that lens and would be offended by it. So I just go in um, being a little better educated about that term and not using it and again, unintentionally offending. And then again, the other person's having the, the wherewithal to have that conversation and um, help me understand and grow. Thank you for naming that. And I totally agree. Working toward equity and inclusion requires even the most experienced practitioners to continue developing self-awareness. Our learning is never done. So I recognize that in your work, you've observed and seen your share of injustices and inequities. What gives you hope? Uh, excellent question. And I think uh, while the past nearly four years have been abhorrent in a lot of ways and uh, this diversity inclusion inclusion realm and some of the destruction that it's occurred um, from some of the folks involved in the political side of things. Um, I think what really uh, gives me hope is just the rising awareness and the spotlight that it's provided in essence because of the way things have been handled and things have been attacked, frankly, 
attacked and offended and discriminated against and harassed, all those negative words, I, I unfortunately have to attribute to what's gone on over the past four years. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that it's in the spotlight and people are really advocating and coming out in a very strong and passionate way, I think it's um, going to make things better over time. Um, there's going to have to be some healing, clearly. Um, and I think some folks are just entrenched in where they are. And I think they will just hopefully um, grow into a less vocal and less powerful position politically. And um, and the leadership will change. And, and I just, I think your question was around hope. So it seems like it's kind of devolving into negativity in some ways. But I think the fact that the spotlight's been shown and that people are saying this is ridiculous and this is wrong. I think, um, you know, there are some very hard conversations occurring and I think this is going to be something, um, that's going to take a very long time. But, um, as you know, diversity inclusion tends to move, move in terms of, um, glacial or, uh, uh, very, very slow incrementally it, it changes. And so, um, I think it's just going to be a long process, but every positive, um, step is positivity and it's increasing awareness and it's um, blending into kind of all human rights in some ways because um, you see things internationally going on. You see um, protests and, and um, allies around Black Lives Matter as a good example or the Me Too era. There's just a lot of synergy. I felt of some of the ridiculousness that's been going on over the past uh, uh, few years here. So that's, that's what brings me hope is that people are really understanding diversity is a value, inclusiveness is a value, and that uh, this darkness is uh, eventually going to fade away. So I have a quick follow-up question to that. Uh, as you know, this is an important election year. And in case there's a change in the power dynamics in the highest levels of government, what changes do you anticipate for your practice? Uh, originally, thought that when the current administration came in that my work would maybe decrease because of um, law that would be passed or rules passed by agencies that would be more favorable to employers and less favorable to employees and less um, cognizant of uh, protections and less protectionist, I guess, for employees. And what it's actually done in a lot of ways is generated a lot of work because there's been a lot of um, sensitivity. And I, that's a terrible word. I don't like that word, but um, there people are more informed that uh, and more heightened in their, in, in their emotions around these issues. And um, so I think it's been interesting because it's actually, I think, increased the work. Um, so I'm actually wondering if a new administration with more sensitivities, more inclusiveness, more welcomeness will have the adverse impact that, uh, the, let's just call it what it is, the Trump administration has had for, um, you know, generating business for people like me and attorneys, I'm sure, as well. Um, so I'm just wondering if that new administration that um, hopefully will supplant the old one will be more inclusive and diverse 
which would potentially lessen my work and, and lessen the frictions. But um, I've seen kind of cyclically through my career that in a, in good times, people are um, bringing forward concerns and in, in bad times, people are bringing forward concerns. So maybe it's just kind of a constancy and it, it never really goes away. And it's part of, again, kind of the evolution. People become maybe more aware. I think about the Obama era and there were a lot more protections that were being passed um, in that era. Um, Title IX is one that comes up, uh, comes to mind in education. That there's a lot of um, rulemaking that occurred and a lot of new um, protections that weren't really um, being enforced prior to the Obama administration that were uh, rolling out. But the, that caused a lot of work for um, people to uh, try to be more proactive and to also. Uh, understand the Me Too era and understand um, discrimination, gender discrimination in uh, the educational environment. So I'm sure there will be things that we're not thinking of now that will come to the forefront and uh, things are always changing. Maybe it'll be around disability and there'll be more activity around that or um, veteran status was something that came out during the Obama administration and through its uh, through the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Program. Uh, that was a strong emphasis, veterans and, and individuals with disabilities. So I'm sure the new administration will have other areas that will push things in a different direction and, and cause different um, emphasis on things. And COVID is another thing that's going to be really interesting because uh, with COVID, employers are um, currently... Uh, very restricted on what they can do with their employees that are on leaves for um, caring for children that are out of school or caring for illnesses or their own illnesses. Uh, so there's a lot of additional restrictions on what employers can do. But at some point, um, I envision, I think uh, things will change, that those will be lifted. And so the question is going to become, I think, why are um, people being laid off or um, terminated from their employment or cut back in their employment? Uh, was it for reasons that were unrelated to COVID or uh, families? And is it something else uh, called discrimination or something else that uh, employers may be using COVID as a reason to try to cut back on those employees that they really weren't wanting to have in the, uh, in, in employment in their in their companies or businesses uh, pre-COVID. So I think there's going to be a ton of litigation. That's kind of the end, end story there is that there's going to be a lot of litigation around leave laws and disability is going to come in there at some point and the fear of getting COVID because of comorbidities and um, conditions. And uh, again, I think people are going to um, feel that they're targeted in some cases because of protect other protected categories uh, that the employer is using the COVID um, downturn as a reason for laying them off, of course, rather than the, the um, uh, protected categories. But uh, I, I just envision a lot of work coming from COVID and when things could start coming back online, the conflict that's going to be... Um, arising from working together again in whatever context that that will look like <laughs> i think there's going to be built up tensions and not uh, having not worked with people um, for four plus months or however long 
this goes on. Thank you, Mike. What what you just shared just uh, really brought for me that the work that you do is so intellectually challenging, especially with the ongoing changes in the employment law landscape. Uh, as you mentioned, you'll continue to be working with clients so that they may navigate a lot of unknowns, as you mentioned, with issues arising from COVID, and also the demands for greater accountability on diversity issues and social justice. Um, so if we could shift gears a little bit, uh, what is the best advice you ever received? When I graduated from law school, it was a very bleak legal market, and very challenging, and um, there weren't a whole lot of uh, attorney jobs. And so uh, my wife and I were uh, talking about how tough it was, and uh, just the piece that we kept saying to each other and or maybe her more to me because I was kind of entering into this market. And at the time she was uh, a law student, I think a, a few years behind me. Um, but it was uh, everything counts for something. And as I was reflecting on um, how I got into the work I do today, uh, that all kind of echoed that um, my work as a attorney in the employment and labor area and doing all the litigation and advising with employers and training for 10 years was something that counted towards OHSU and understanding how things work there um, in the diversity inclusion realm, built, building upon um, what I'd learned uh, in my law career. Uh, and also even before then, taking some weird uh, temporary jobs and learning little bits and pieces of administration, administrative law or agency law, um, kind of work before I even became a practicing lawyer. But uh, again, just every little piece um, kind of building and um, informing me and becoming me, uh, helping me become more rounded and more experienced, whether I was an employee or a manager, supervisor, or um, leader, director, um, working on projects like uh, the physical access committee you mentioned or the diversity advisory council, helping build my experience in working with uh, various diverse communities and doing a lot of outreach with um, different minority chambers. Um, all of that helped me inform and also helped um, me understand uh, my client, my current work and my clients and how to market as an example um, was something I wasn't particularly great at as a lawyer, which might surprise a lot of people, but I think I learned how to do that through being with OHSU and working in communities and um, seeing kind of the different things that OHSU did to market itself, um, but also for me to be in the communities and marketing diversity inclusion or reaching out to businesses to participate in Night for Networking, a disability event that tried to bring businesses into the room. So I think every little thing, again, counts towards something. It's kind of um, a theme I see in my career, maybe in my life, and just how um, I as a person or as a business person have grown and, and built upon. So while things may seem very small or insignificant, I think every little piece of experience you have is, is valuable in how you move forward and, and grow as a person. Thank you for tuning in. My guest was Michael Tom, JD. Chief Consultant for Northwest Workplace Investigations. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to or follow Colors of Influence everywhere you get your podcast.
For updates, please follow us on Instagram at Colors of Influence and on Twitter, Colors Influence. Email us your ideas for future topics and guests at pod at colorsofinfluence.com. Support is provided by House of Pod and the Amped Women of Color Podcast Incubator.